You are listening to the Signature Books Podcast. Signature Books is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can support this podcast and others in our network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. Welcome to Signature Books. I'm Barbara Jones-Brown, Director of Signature Books Publishing. Thank you so much for joining us here at Signature tonight as we pay tribute to the life of our dear friend and colleague, Levina Fielding Anderson. Signature Books' founder and president, George Smith, could not be with us in person tonight, but I wanted to begin by sharing his words about Levina. From 1981 to 2021, Levina Fielding Anderson served on Signature Books' Board of Editors, Board of Directors, and Editorial Advisory Committee. During those 40 years, she reviewed hundreds of submitted manuscripts, offering recommendations for improvement in language and structure. Among the many aspects of her own influential career of reading and writing, are her repeated criticisms of LDS anti-intellectualism. There was never a question as to where her support lay. Levina was a careful editor, an insightful mentor, and a loyal friend. We will miss her. Um, Tonight, I'd like to recognize folks from Signature who are here with us. Uh, Signature's marketing specialist, Beth Brummer-Reeve, uh, marketing manager, Devery Anderson, who recently had knee surgery, so he was downstairs welcoming you as you came in. Um, we'd, I'd also like to recognize Gary Bergera, who recently retired as director of Signature Books and the Smith Pettit Foundation. Paul Reeve, who serves on Signature's board of directors and editorial advisory committee. And I think that covers all of our Signature Smith Pettit folks who are here with us tonight. We are especially honored to have Levina and Paul Anderson's son, Christian, and daughter-in-law, Marina, with us this evening. Marina's eulogy of Levina and Christian's remarks about his mother at Levina's funeral were both so touching and insightful that I asked both of them to begin our tribute tonight by sharing their thoughts with us again. We will then hear some thoughts from Gary Bergera and Martha Bradley Evans, who worked alongside Levina in various capacities for Signature. Unfortunately, Marty had a conflict and couldn't be with us tonight, but Paul Reeve, uh, again, a board member, will read her thoughts for her. We will then open up the microphone to any of you who would like to share your thoughts and memories of Levina. So that everyone has a chance to speak, we just ask that you limit your comments to a few minutes and then we'll plan on wrapping up in about an hour or so. Um, We do plan on sharing this, uh, a recording of this as a YouTube, on our YouTube channel and also as a Signature Books podcast. So uh, if you speak, just let us know if you give us permission or not. We don't, we can take you out if you'd rather not be broadcast that way and uh, we will proceed from here. So Marina. Hi everyone and thank you for being here. Um, I, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Marina, her daughter-in-law, um, and I had the privilege of knowing Levina for the last 22 years before her passing. Christian and I lived with her in her beautiful home on Roberta Street since Paul's unexpected passing five years ago. Levina was born on April 13, 1944 in Shelley, Idaho, an agricultural town of 1,800 people. She was the second of six children born to Herman James Fielding and Della Maud Dial. 
The family earned a living as potato farmers. When she was about 11, her family relocated from Idaho to the small town of Othello in eastern Washington in search of more farmland. They left a fertile and mountainous region for what they soon discovered was a dust bowl. The trade was not prosperous, and Levina grudgingly recalled her preteen and teen years as being filled with backbreaking labor for minimal economic returns. She found an escape through books, which she devoured at an astonishing rate. She graduated as salutatorian from her high school in 1962. Levina managed to escape the farm life by enrolling at BYU, where she earned a bachelor's degree in English in 1968 followed by a master's degree in 1971. Her master's thesis compared the concept of the frontier in contemporary Israeli and historical Mormon literature. She supported herself through BYU by working as a teaching assistant and editing the Graduate Journal of Literary Criticism. She also interrupted her studies for two years to serve a mission in Eastern France. After BYU, she relocated to the University of Washington in Seattle, where she earned a doctorate in English in just three years, defending a dissertation on the conceptualization of the Western U.S. landscape in 1974. With her PhD and a job offer under her belt, she moved to Salt Lake City to work on the editorial staff of the Ensign Magazine for the next eight years. While working in the Church History Archives, she met Paul Lawrence Anderson, a historic architect and museum designer. They courted, which was for a time unbeknownst to her, which is actually quite a funny story. And she writes about it, actually, one of the essays that might be in Mercy Without End. They were eventually married on June 13, 1977. Their only child, Christian, was born in March of 1980. Due in large part to ideological differences with her employer, in 1981, Levina left to start her own editing business called Editing Incorporated, or Editing Inc., for short, a rarely understood pun on the red ink she liberally but lovingly distributed across her clients' manuscripts. Some of you were likely recipients of that. Lovina went on to have a successful career as an independent editor. Her editing projects and publications are too numerous to list, but here are some of her major accomplishments. She served as editor of the Journal of Mormon History for 19 years and continued as a copy editor another seven years. She was the editor for the Association of Mormon Letters for 11 years. She was co-editor of the Case Reports of the Mormon Alliance and editor of its newsletter by common consent for over 20 years. She was copy editor for Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought for nine years. She was a member of the editorial advisory board of Signature Books. She was the editor of Lucy's Book, a critical edition of Lucy Mack Smith's family memoir published in 2001 and was until her passing working on a writing of Lucy's life, a biography of Lucy Mack Smith. She ghost wrote many books, including some books for church leaders. Outside of Mormonism, she served as an editor for the Review of Higher Education for 25 years. <laughs> Mormon history was her area of expertise and she presented at many Mormon history conferences, including the annual Mormon History Association and John Whitmer Historical Association conferences. She also valued women's spaces and attended many women's groups and retreats, including Pilgrimage, Exponent 2, Retrenchment, and her Beyond Words Book Club, 
Within her ward, Levina served in a variety of church callings, ranging from Cub Scout Den Leader to Relief Society pianist. Levina's public excommunication for alleged apostasy as part of the September 6th in 1993 made headlines locally and nationally. There are likely even in this audience many versions and interpretations of that event, so I'd like to quote Levina's own writing on that notable event. In 1992 and 1993, when some of us were on a very interesting collision course with the church over the issue of voice and silence, I got a call from two women whom I love and respect. They were both older than me, not a full generation, but perhaps a half generation. They could see the collision coming and asked me for my own best interests to step out of the public discussion. One of them asked, why does it matter when you know what you think? Why do you have to say it? This was the same message that various priesthood leaders who may very well have been motivated by the same genuine concern as these women gave to various individuals whom they went on to excommunicate. Think and believe what you like, just don't talk about it, and especially don't talk about it in public. The only real answer I had to these two friends is that ecclesiastical abuse, the suppression of free inquiry, especially about Mormon history, and the inequality of women were causes that called to me in ways that other causes did not. As a matter of conscience and personal integrity, I was called to speak, not to be silent. End quote. As those close to her know, including her Whittier Ward family, which was the ward she attended for many, many years, even after her excommunication, Levina did not let the excommunication stop her from being a believer in the LDS gospel. She continued to attend church faithfully until 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic and her declining health made it too difficult to continue. She read her scriptures daily. She prayed at every mealtime, frequently adding a supplication to bless and guide her church leaders. She read every issue of the Ensign, New Era, and Friend. She loved listening to and singing church hymns. She served as the unofficial pianist in Relief Society. She was Mormon to her core, even if the institutional church did not acknowledge it. And Christian and I definitely witnessed this living with her the last five years that we couldn't get away with, with not praying at a mealtime. She insisted on that sort of thing. And she read the Book of Mormon every year. In 2018, with the support of her bishop and stake president, Levina began steps toward church reinstatement. President McLean reconvened the High Council Court on March 24, 2019, and as a result forwarded a positive recommendation for reinstatement to the First Presidency. After some intervening paperwork, the First Presidency ruled on August 7, 2019, that they would not authorize a change in her status, quote, at this time, without any reason given. Once again, Levina did not let this decision define her or dissuade her. She claimed that she was disappointed, but not surprised or dismayed. In her mind, the original decision had been illogical, and so was this one. As before, her belief in God's love for her and for all of God's children remained intact. Levina passed away on October 29, 2023, in her home in Salt Lake City, where she had lived for 46 years. Though increasingly limited in mobility and energy for the last 10 years of her life, she was mentally clear until her last 48 hours, and kind to the last, 
giving away books to her nurse as her last voluntary act. She died of cardiorespiratory failure, secondary to pulmonary hypertension. I have no doubt that Levina's contributions to academia, literature, and religious discourse will continue to inspire future generations. Her passion for knowledge, her commitment to social justice, and her deep spirituality will be remembered by all those who have the privilege of knowing her or engaging with her work. Hello, everyone. And once again, thank you for being here. Um, I will try and keep this brief since for many of you, this is a second installment. Um, and uh, even for those of you who aren't, I'm probably not adding much to what you already know about Levina. She was someone who uh, left an indelible impression everywhere she went by being constitutionally frank um, and incapable of dissembling. <laughs> so I ask you to end the funeral. Our talk between our talks uh, was a talk by Levina's brother, Lynn Fielding, uh, who talked about birth to college years. Um, and for a lot of you, that probably is where the new information is. Levina didn't like to talk about her childhood on the potato farm, which she remembers without fondness. <laughs> but you can find more of that in the city of growing up in the city of the saints. The Shepherd twins wrote uh, a very nice introduction to her and the story of her finding a library for the first time and checking out 127 books and reading them all in three weeks. <laughs> okay, so my talk was called What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? I ask you to listen with tolerance since I'm writing it under three major handicaps, more so than than now. First, I'm Levine's only child, Christian, so everything I say is irredeemably biased by love and grief, which are really two sides of the same coin. Second, like all of you, I no longer have Levina to edit my stuff, <laughs> which means weak arguments go unchallenged, purple prose remains indigo, and there are a few places where I use a semicolon instead of a dash. <laughs> you laugh, but that's a big deal. Uh, third, you should know that I recently defended a dissertation in mathematical physics. That has nothing to do with the talk. I just work it into every conversation. <laughs> Um, no, it's so because I'm someone who tries to understand the world through numbers. Avina was certainly a complex phenomenon that uh, deserved quantification. So there are a few of these numbers that I found that are kind of remarkable because she was introverted. She was borderline autistic. She would have been really uncomfortable with that diagnosis, but we have someone who does that for a living living uh, in the house and can confirm it. <laughs> she would rather read than really do anything, and yet somehow found herself as a figurehead for an entire community of inside edgers and sometimes outside edgers, um, the Mormon church. And like Virginia Woolf says, when a subject is highly controversial, one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold. One can only give one's audience the chance of drawing their own conclusions as they observe the limitations, the prejudices, and the idiosyncrasies of the speaker. So here are some of the data I used to form my opinion. When Levina moved to Salt Lake City in 1974, she changed Mormonism forever. First, she is arguably a dominant force shaping Mormon scholarship. During her time here, she collaborated with leading scholars, being a titled editor with Maureen Ersenbach Beecher, Eugene England, Newell Breenhurst, three volumes of the case reports with Janice Allred. 
on her own. She wrote Lucy's book, a critical edition of Lucy Max Smith's memoir, and makes a great Christmas present. <laughs> and the essay collection Mercy Without End, also available over there. Uh, the biography of Lucy's life, as Levina says, is forthcoming. That's being finished by Christine Hagland and published by the lovely lady in the front row. <laughs> Um, in addition to these collaborations, she has published 34 book reviews, wrote 11 chapters, and published 55 journal articles. She also delivered numerous talks at Sunstone and history conferences that I attended since I was in utero. Um, you may remember some of the... She also moderated a great large number of sessions she was not actually presenting at. You may remember her injunction to people asking questions at the end that any question that cannot be phrased in 30 seconds constitutes a counter, um, <laughs> a counter presentation. And will be cut off. <laughs> her greatest influence, though perhaps the one that's hardest to see is that she edited 311 books and journals. Wow. The list is on the website, elevina.org. Um, it's a pretty substantial fraction of the Mormon studies literature of the mid-80s to mid-2000s. Though she was mostly the most broadly read person I know and really could have edited a whole lot of other things, she decided to stay in this religious tradition and to devote herself to that in ways that few lay members ever have. As impressive as these statistics are, there are two numbers that I think sum her impact up even better that I want to think about for the rest of our time together. These numbers are 1,370 and zero. The first number, 1,370, is how many times I estimate she sat in sacrament meeting, more than the number of times the bishop attended, by the way. <laughs> and watched the symbols of Christ's universal love for everyone, visitors welcome, be denied to her specifically and only. By the time she stopped attending due to ill health, her excommunication was more than twice as old as the deacons who were refusing to pass her the symbols of Christ's love. Uh, the second number is zero, which is the number of times she expressed any fear at any point during the proceedings when she was being excommunicated when she was coming to church after the excommunication, <clears throat> when she was being pressured to withdraw her writings, when she was trying to be rebaptized. I want all of you to take a moment to really consider what that means. That is not the kind of courage most of us can understand, much less claim. So take a deep breath and answer this question in your own mind. What would I do? What would I say? And to whom would I say it if I was not afraid? if I was brave the way Levina was. If you're like me, some of the things you're holding in um, are mean, are angry and wounding. This explains one of the major contradictions that made up the walking paradox that was Levina. Hundreds of testimonials on her webpage and on Facebook bear witness to how she touched many lives with kindness and empathy. She signed most of her voluminous correspondence affectionately and kept a cross-stitch sampler on the wall of her office from before I was born that reads, showing affection is not a sign of weakness. It is merely a sign of affection. <laughs> but because she really truly did not care what people thought of her, she could also just snap people off at the knees. I have seen authors leave a session with Levina slithering down the front steps, clutching their manuscripts, <laughs> bleeding red wounds on every page. 
I remember one sunstone for one of her co-panelists arrived late and was sort of muttering an excuse as to why. And she leaned into the microphone and said, no one cares why you're late. Sit down. (laughs) (laughs) He did, by the way. (laughs) That sort of unfiltered frankness should have earned Levina nothing but enemies and would have if that same frankness didn't also make her compliments resonate with a kind of frank uh, sincerity that you just don't get uh, from most other people. I remember that that same sunstone, uh, she also had someone sit next to her and sort of start telling her the life story and burst into tears. She just stood up and gave her a blessing, hands on the head blessing right there in the middle of the conference. I hear some of you saying, but what about relationships? Who can live looking into an unflattering mirror like that? Many of you were here five years ago for Paul's unexpected funeral. Uh, Levina wasn't the only LDS scholar moving to Salt Lake City in the mid-70s. Many of the new arrivals to Salt Lake City were doing projects related to church history and had formed four groups of people living together. Paul, who was the architectural historian, decided to do a progressive dinner where everyone could go see everyone else's houses, and he called people up to so he could write it as if it was a tour guide, that you were going to the great houses of Utah or something, great uh, Europe. Paul Levina, um, and when she answered the phone, she was listening to a piece of music by Brahms that we had played at the funeral. It had always been one of his favorites, and after chatting with her on the phone and at the progressive party itself, decided to ask her out. He mentioned this to someone who had recently also dated Levina, and he said, absolutely don't do that. She's an ogre. Um, Paul was the sort of person who appreciated frank honesty. Uh, This other person was not. Uh, Forewarned, he did not take her to dinner, but instead to Deseret Book, and said, let's split up and meet back at the checkout counter at 45 minutes. Like most of us, he came back with uh, two books he was sure about getting and was sort of deciding whether or not to get a third, if he really would have time for that. Uh, Levina plunked down 27 on the counter and said it was very nice of him to offer to carry the books home, which he hadn't, but (laughs) did. Uh, That was pretty much it for Paul, although Levina took a lot more convincing. After he proposed, she took almost three months to think it over, embarking on a lengthy series of prayed questions and answers that led her to research, seek counsel from church leaders, more prayers. Finally, when asking, should I marry Paul, the answer came, you have enough information to make this decision yourself. In teletype, she received answers as if they were being typed on a typewriter. (laughs) Well, I will then, she said. She wrote in a later speech, it was as if a host of angels burst into applause and the earth re-echoed their joy. In her signature undramatic way, she decided the right moment to tell Paul uh, was on a barren stretch of I-15 outside of Mona, Utah. He pulled over, said, well, this is a hell of a place, and kissed her. She did not tell him about the spiritual experience at all. He learned about it in the same talk I did. Um, Of course, we can't talk about Levine without talking about her deep belief in the sacred nature of words. She loved them. She used them brilliantly. She never let her manual of style drop below body temperature. I remember once she won free tickets to a play called Ellie Mocenary about a spelling bee champion because she was the only person in a room full of scholars who knew what the word meant. She carried this, it means financially charitable, by the way, good thing to keep in mind for Giving Thursday. Um, she carried this love to ludicrous ex- 
extremes at times. I remember her napping in a hotel room while Paul and I were channel surfing and the commercial for diapers came on with the tagline, love your baby, give them pampers. Lavina woke up, said, give him or her pampers and went back to sleep. <laughs> Another time Lavina was driving me home from middle school with a friend. Uh, we were talking the way teenagers do and she suddenly shouted, if you say the word like one more time, I'm making you walk home. <clears throat> when my friend did in fact use the word like one more time, she pulled to a screeching halt on the middle of Third West and glared at him until he apologized. <laughs> she respected words like this for a couple of reasons. First, they were her escape from the manual labor of the farm. Although she loved nature, she hated working outdoors. Second, Words were her window into other people. For all her kindness, she had difficulty understanding how others thought and what they felt. This, the memorial, for example, was held literally over her dead body. She did not want anyone to come and was confused as to why anyone would want to come. She had nothing left to contribute. And so, anyway. But most importantly, she respected words because they let people be seen clearly. She loved working as an editor because she could help people present their best selves clearly and honestly. People responded to this. One woman wrote on her wall, you may have had one son, but you have mothered generations of Mormon sisters and daughters. As we know, this compulsive honesty combined with caring for others led directly to her excommunication. When she realized through her work at the Ensign and in the archives that the lack of checks and balances was leading to a whole lot of ecclesiastical abuse. It wasn't just her, it was just about everyone she knew and worked with on a daily basis. Um, she believed that she could solve this problem by documenting all of these problems through excellent impeccable scholarship, much the way Lester Bush, the recently departed earlier this week, um, had written a brilliant article to help President Kimball see the origins of the priesthood ban. Lavina always decided that the way to show love was by changing the world so everyone felt welcome, not by trying to change herself to tolerate injustice. There's a mark of how carefully she researched the problem that not one authority nor anyone involved in the 138 court cases she reported has ever even suggested she said something untrue. Sadly, scrupulous accuracy was not enough this time. I know there are many parents who worry what effect honesty and your spiritual journey to the edge of the church might have on your children. As a teen, I would sometimes express that I was upset with Levina for taking a stand against spiritual abuse because it was making my life harder. I had a lonely teenage life in the crack between the Mormon kids and the non-Mormon kids who did lots of things to prove they were non-Mormon and vice versa. So, if you worry your children will resent you for making their lives harder at times, they will. But it was all I was also proud of her then, and I am even more proud now of her example of courage and integrity. Whatever failures I have in my life, they don't come because they lack role models and bravery. For example, about 48 hours before Levina died, she had her first break with reality. I heard her calling me and rushed downstairs to find her on the bathroom floor. She had somehow crawled there, despite not having been out of bed for a week, and insisted with some impatience and in French that I help her find the kidnapped Swiss girls. So to be clear, in her mind, Levina found herself unable to walk in a foreign continent, surrounded by kidnappers, in the dark, 
And her response to the situation was to be irritated and to find people who could help take care of strangers, make sure they were safe. And in many ways, that tells you everything you need to know about Levina. When you stripped away the eloquence and the encyclopedic intelligence, what remained was courage and compassion that was etched right onto the fundamental substance of her soul. I also want to thank the Whittier Ward, who uh, was remarkable in supporting her throughout this. Thank you. I'm inhaling a little speck of sentiment. <laughs> yeah, sentimentary rocks layers here. After she was excommunicated, of course, she could hold no church callings. However, there were two different bishops um, who conveniently forgot to call a Relief Society pianist. So every week they would need an emergency substitute, and Levina just happened to be there with her handbook for about 12 years. Also, when... The Sunday after she was excommunicated, when we walked there the first time, Paul had to conduct the uh, choir and I had to pass the sacrament, so she had to walk from the door to her bench alone. And she writes about this in Mercy Without End. She says, the bishop was standing at the door to the chapel. He pulled me into a hug, smiling warmly. The walk, it was a very long walk, but not because it was a hard one. It was because people kept stopping me, hugging me. When I sat down, it took me a minute to realize what I was feeling. Pride. I was so proud of my ward. They were behaving exactly as you'd hope a Christian community would behave. I think it's true that at the grassroots, there are really exceptional people in the Mormon church. And I think that is the way the church rolls forward. Levina's courage and compassion, as we all know, got her into trouble, but I think they are also the reason we are still here, celebrating her today, because we don't mourn the passing of a woman who did what others told her to and came to the death full of regrets. Neither do we gather to grieve a woman embittered by injustice. Today we look at a life lived with complete authenticity. We honor it and we pray for Levina's strength, Levina integrity, Levina courage, so that our and will also come with the same sense of wholeness and completeness as hers. Amen. Only now do I realize that, second to my mother, Levina Fielding Anderson was the most important woman in my life. Her friendship, support, and love were unconditional and boundless. Her example showed me what was possible, not just in writing and scholarship, but in how to navigate a life of intellectual honesty and fearlessness. I must have met Levina earlier, but I first got to know her when she asked me to join her all-volunteer editorial staff in helping to edit Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, beginning in about 1983. I had recently graduated from BYU with a master's degree in public administration, had published articles in the Utah Historical Quarterly and in Dialogue, had been involved with the Seventh East Press and had started to work with Ron on a history of BYU. Levina was an incredibly patient, supportive mentor. Her occasional staff meetings and one-on-one -on -one training sessions were priceless introductions to the delicate, dangerous art of editing. As she approached each manuscript, Levina functioned as the author's best friend and confidant. Her only interest was helping the author to produce the best work possible. Not every author agreed, but every manuscript was better thanks to Levina's skillful intervention. 
Beyond editing, Levina was a model of scholarship and perceptive, careful writing. Following her example closely constituted a master class in both editing and scholarship. Beginning at dialogue and extending off and on through the next four decades, primarily at Signature, where Levina served on the Board of Editors, Board of Directors, and Editorial Advisory Committee, I was privileged to work closely with her. Levina was a strong, articulate, sometimes fierce voice for a variety of points of view. In my experience, I never once heard Levina recommend against acceptance of a manuscript merely because she disagreed with the author's stance. Never. What mattered to her was the author's use and interpretation of sources, the author's quality of writing, the author's clarity in presenting their arguments. While I know some reviewers rely on these considerations as smoke screens, in order to dismiss works they disagree with on religious ideological grounds, Levina never did. In her embrace of Mormon studies, Levina's focus was scholarship, not apology. The LDS Church's disciplining of Levina in 1993 brought me as close to severing my own relationship to the Church as anything ever has. In fact, I sometimes wonder if the only thing holding me back was cowardice. And while I'm certain I would not have responded as she did to the Church's mistreatment of her, I remain in bewildered awe of Levina's continuing commitment thereafter to the religious ideals she was raised on and especially of her own powerful spiritual experiences. In 2011, and again in 2016, Levina and I talked about death. In both instances, I shared the story of my father's older sister. She'd worked as a nurse in Carbon County for more than 50 years. In the years after she retired, she was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. She knew what the treatment would be like, as well as what her prospects were, and she declined all therapies. Following her diagnosis, she spent her remaining time at home. She stopped eating and only took medication to manage her pain. She survived for about two weeks and, attended by her daughter and husband, was bedbound for only the final 24 or so hours. Levina told me that she admired my aunt, who she said had died on her own terms. Levina said that she'd explained to people what she intended when she faced death. She said that she didn't expect to live to age 80 or much beyond. Earlier this year, I asked Levina for a copy of the sermon she read at Linda King Newell's funeral in February. After I received it, I suggested lunch and offered that Ron and I could pick up some food and take it to her place. She didn't say no. Time passed, life intervened, and eventually it became clear that lunch would not happen. Quote, the closest bonds we will ever know, Cormac McCarthy writes in All the Pretty Horses, are bonds of grief, the deepest community, one of sorrow. I know that Levina loved books. I can't help wondering if British novelist and critic Virginia Woolf best expresses, at least in part, Levina's own hopes for her future. Writing in 1926 in an essay entitled How Should One Read a Book, Woolf speculates about the destiny awaiting some of us at heaven's gate. Quote, I have sometimes dreamt at least, she concludes, that when the day of judgment dawns and the great conquerors and lawyers and statesmen come to receive their rewards, their crowns, their laurels, their names carved indelibly upon imperishable marble, the Almighty will turn to Peter and will say, not without a certain envy, when he sees us coming with our books under our arms, look, these need no reward. 
We have nothing to give them here. They have loved reading. Thank you. Just as a reminder, these are Martha Bradley Evans' words. I am so sorry that I am not with you all tonight and appreciate Paul's willingness to read my comment for me. I have known and loved Levinas since the early 1980s. Through those years, I grew in my respect, admiration, and affection for her. We were lucky to have her among us. We published Levinas' article, The LDS Intellectual Community and Church Leadership, A Contemporary Chronology, in Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, Spring 1993. In it, she describes the clash between obedience to ecclesiastical authority and the integrity of individual conscience. Many of the stories or examples in the article were ones we had already heard or that reflected on experiences many of us or our loved ones had had. I have always thought this piece and her work with the case studies in the Mormon Alliance demonstrated best how Levina cared. I believe she cared about all of us. She used logic to point out injustice, perhaps saw that as a sort of mission for her, regardless of the consequences. I recommend a second dialogue article for your consideration. Freedom of Conscience, a Personal Statement, published in Dialogue, Winter 1993, which along with Christian's eulogy at her funeral help us understand how she thought about dissent, conviction, personal revelation, and the obligation that comes with it to act on it, to be consistent in what you know is good or true. She modeled this with her stubborn, admirable commitment to speaking truth to power, but not for the act of it, but because she felt inspired to do so, and she stuck with it at great personal cost. I admire her so much for this. Many have openly criticized the church, but have not been punished so harshly as Levina. The church has been so unforgiving of her. I think she speaks to how profound her influence was, her impact. I know that many of us felt like she was fighting for all of us and personally felt this force. Levina had a different way of communicating emotion, but her tremendous demonstration of caring for all of us was expressed in action. At times, I felt a huge rush of affection from her, a sideways glance with a sly smile in a meeting, or even a sort of giggle that implied complicity or shared humor. At other times, I felt like she thought I was a little bit of an idiot, that I should have done better the first time around or been a better writer, a better thinker. Levina edited two of my important books, Four Zinas and Pedestals and Poems. <coughs> And both became so much better through her careful reading, spectacular recommendations, and gentle guidance, and a number of articles stretching from the early 1980s to the 2000s. You know, when you get your book to publication, the time of sending it to your editor is like sending it into a black hole. But then suddenly you get it back and the real pain begins. Levina was the most careful reader of any of us. I used to love sitting in signature book meetings and listening to Levina read her comments about a manuscript she had reviewed. And then Richard Van Wagner would read his comment, which began a sort of dialogue with hers. They both were so brilliant and astute, searching for nuance or significance or originality. Both were committed to excellence and to avoiding mediocrity. 
Levina was also such an intriguing reader. I always loved listening to her comments because she saw more than any of the rest of us. Because of her vast understanding of Mormon history and her involvement with Mormon literature, she was perfectly suited for the task. She had an encyclopedic memory for what had been published and when, who made this point or that, or what mattered and what did not. Levina had a profound impact on the quality of scholarly work produced by signature books that appeared in Dialogue or the Journal of Mormon History that shaped so much of what we understand of the Mormon past. I would be lying to say it was a light and easy process to be the recipient of her criticism. It was painful at first to see my carefully produced manuscript slashed and burned like a child running through a hedge of thorns. Imagine blood running down their shirt. I received far more than my share of blah, blah, blahs, or (coughs) I'm bored, or tighten this up. Footnotes were a particular agony for me. I swear this is when she thought I was an idiot. But always, 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 my manuscripts were better for her hand on them. When we were working on my Pedestals and Podiums book, she wanted more and more, encouraging me to dig deeper into the history of feminism nationally or of the international women's conferences or personalities. She was voracious in her ambition for my book, which was described as a tome by one feminist reader, but by another as one of the uh, 10 most important books of that time in Mormon studies. I recognize that this was because of Levina's contribution, her gentle pushing of my abilities or limits, her sharp intellect and questions. My work was better because of her involvement in it. We won prizes and awards for the four Zainas, again, accolades that I share with her. She always made me look better. I cannot remember the first time I met Levina, but I know I met her several times before it clicked, that she remembered who I was. Was it at Rexburg, Omaha? I don't remember. But since that time, I have had the most tremendous regard for her. Huge love for her quirky, wonderful, and abundant self. Thank you, Paul, for reading Marty's words. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Marina. Thank you, Christian. We'll now open the mic to any of you who would like to share any thoughts or memories about Levina. Again, we just ask that you keep it brief so that everybody who wants to speak has a chance to. And also, if you would just introduce yourself, say your name um, when you come up. Thank you. Uh, My name is Janice Allred. Um, I first met Levina in 1969. We were in an English class at BYU together. I remember her. I do not think she remembered me. She was, um, at that time, a a brilliant scholar, as she always was, and I was just a bit more autistic than she was. (laughs) Then uh, I always remembered her. And we were living in Princeton when she became uh, an editor. She was something for the Ensign, and I noticed her name. Again, I thought, oh, Levina, you're doing another wonderful thing. And then her name was changed later on. Anderson was added. No one told me, but I know who it was. It was Paul Anderson, our friend, whom we had known at Princeton. So 
for me, there I have always had a very deep spiritual connection with Lavinia, even before she knew me. She first knew me in 1992 when we were we worked together in the Mormon Alliance. As Christian mentioned, we did the case reports together, and this was a really interesting process for me to work with Lavina. Uh, Lavina liked to be in charge, and I was fine with that. So she gave me my jobs to do, which I fulfilled as well as I could. Our first volume was um, in 1995. It was uh, about child sexual abuse in the church. This got quite a bit of national attention, and um, there were quite a few different uh, the press wanted to talk to Levina about it. Well, this was came out just in the summer, and some of you probably know, every summer Levina went to her cabin, and she did not emerge. So she said to me, okay, Janice, you do all the interviews. And did I want to? No, of course not. But I was willing to do it. But they did not want to talk to me. <laughs> Levina was the... This was just before my own excommunication, I think. Anyway, she was always much more famous than I. So uh, they kept making different offers. Well, will she do it if we do it like on a Sunday when she's down? So, of course, I could not call her. So I would go, I would walk. I drove my car, walked to her cabin, gave her the proposal. And she said, no, I won't do it. So I said, <laughs> okay. You have to do it, Janice. Okay. So I would go back and they would then make another. I went up three times, each time thinking, surely she will do it now. They were going to come up there. It was, and she always said no. But did they want me? No. So we did not do any <laughs> interviews. So that, Levina and I worked together on many different projects, but we also had a really, really strong friendship. She helped me so much during my own excommunication, um, both with the process and also with the um, account that I wrote, I did. And the second volume of the case reports was my story, over 200 pages. And Levina helped me first by when I was going through the process, after every interview with a bishop or state president, whoever, court, whatever, I called her and gave her an account of everything that had happened, everything that they had said, everything that I had said. So then I had this record that I could use. When uh, Levina only edited a few of my things and um, she really was pretty light with me. The only thing she ever, she would sometimes say things like, with that, how did you feel? Or put more here when she suggested changes in a sentence or the grammar, we would always talk it through. I never just said, okay. <laughs> we would talk it through and she would say, I would say, sometimes she would say, you're right, Janice, you're, what you want is better than what I said. So anyway, we had this, we both have a love of language and words. I had to laugh when I heard Christian say about the difference between the semicolon and the dash because the day before the funeral, I had been helping my granddaughter with a paper she was writing, and I had given her a short lecture on when to use a semicolon and when to use a dash. So the other thing that Levina and I shared was a deep love of, of Jesus Christ and the gospel. We talked about it many times. 
we had spiritual experiences together. We were in a book group together for several years, maybe, I can't remember, maybe 10 years. And I was not, I, I could drive, but I was not able to drive home in the dark. So I always stayed in their home. And it was always wonderful for me because, and this is Levina, after the book group, she always went to bed and Paul stayed awake and Paul and I would talk about all kinds of things. <laughs> and then, so I got to be friends with Paul too. And I got to be in their home. Levina, before, when she went into hospice, the message that I got was she was getting no more of it. She was not wanting to visit anyone. And I felt, Levina, we have been through so many things together. I know you want to see me. So I told Christian, can I see Levina? And he said, yes, you can, but be, be aware that she, you know, she, her energy is low. She can't talk very long. So I said, I, I'm fine. If she can't talk, I just want to go. So I went. She was so alert. We talked two and a half hours, and she held my hand the whole time. And I said to her, uh, Levina, would you like me to give you a blessing? And she said, yes. And I was so surprised. And that was such a beautiful experience for both of us. And I kissed her, and I said, I love you. I said, I will come back and see you again if you want me to. She said, no. This is goodbye. So it was. It was goodbye. And I knew because of the spiritual feelings that we had together, I knew that she would not linger much after that. And she didn't. It was only a few weeks after that that she died. So I wanted to share those things with you about my dear, beloved friend, Lavina. <laughs> I'm reading some thoughts that Todd Compton put together to be read tonight. So these are Todd Compton's words. I don't remember when I first met Levina. I might have known about her when she was one of the September 6th in 1993. I had a lot of respect and admiration for all of that group. I was just starting my own work in Mormon history then. However, I think she became familiar with my work when In Sacred Loneliness was being evaluated, edited, and published by Signature from 1994 to 1997. She must have introduced herself to me at an MHA gathering, and then she asked me to be on the editorial board of the Journal of Mormon History. After that time, we were constantly exchanging emails, and she edited papers I published in the Journal of Mormon History and Dialogue. We became friends and sometimes were able to meet on my visits to Utah. When I was writing an article for Joe Geisner's book, Writing Mormon History, about how I researched and wrote in sacred loneliness, I found out for the first time that Levina had been a reader for my submission manuscript, so her positive recommendation led to my book's publication. I think she recommended me to Coford Books to update and edit Leland Gentry's Missouri PhD thesis, and because she was involved, I accepted that offer. This was published as Fire and the Sword, A History of the Latter-day Saints in Northern Missouri, 1836 to 1839. I edited Gentry's book chapter by chapter. Then the chapters went to her and were made even more readable. I remember one thing she did that greatly improved the book. Whenever a person in the text was identified only by his or her last name, Levina asked that the first name be added. In other words, if Gentry had written, in point of fact, Comstock, Comstock's company was detailed. Levina would add a note asking me to find and add Comstock's first name. At first, out of pure laziness, 
I felt a bit reluctant to do the hard work to identify people in that way. But I, after I had done it a few times, I realized how valuable and important that information was. While I hadn't been able to immediately identify who those persons were, I found that by doing the work to add the first name, I was often led to find background in little biographies of those persons, which helped me to understand them and the incidents they were involved in. And now when people read Gentry's book as published by Covert Books, if they wonder who exactly Comstock was, they will know that it was Nehemiah Comstock, and it will be much easier to identify him. Just that aspect of Levina's editing made Gentry's book more helpful for historians and readers. I often think about little things like that in a history book. Readers and even historians won't notice that anything has been changed or improved, but Levina's edits deepen the historical context in subtle ways. Levina played a crucial role in getting my books published and more readable. I have found that other authors have similar experiences with Levina, that she has generously helped books and articles get started, accepted, edited, and published. She certainly helped shepherd my books and articles towards publication. It was always fun to see Levina when I was in Utah. One time my whole family dropped in to Levina's house and she shared toasted cheese sandwiches with us. When I listened to Levina's funeral via Zoom, I found that she and Paul deeply loved music. One year, Laura and I made a sampler of music to send to friends around Christmas time, filled with some of our favorite music. Levina was very appreciative in her thanks for it. And she told how one time they misplaced the CD and apparently things came to a standstill in the Anderson household until they were able to track it down. I remember one time I was talking to one of my friends from Community of Christ and Levina's name came up and he said, oh, I think Levina is kind of a Martin Luther King figure in Mormonism. I haven't talked about Levina as a courageous historian and opponent of spiritual abuse, as I've emphasized our writing and editing. I also viewed her as a spiritual guide, as well as a wonderful friend and editor. My name is Jody England Hanson, and Levina has been a teacher and an example to me since I was a teenager. Can't believe how fortunate to have such people in my life. And so the there are so many, but the thing I want to share is an experience that I had where Levina was act not actually with me, but so much of what she taught me guided every step of this. This was two and a half years ago, and um, another amazing woman was, they call it a hearing now, uh, a court had been called. And I, uh, when, when Natasha Helfer told me about it, it was as if I just kept asking myself, what would Levina do? And um, I immediately knew I would be there as a witness for Natasha and, and several of us flew uh, back to where it was um, technically in no way, shape, or form, according to any kind of guideline or church policy, uh, being held basically illegally. And several of us went to witness because Levina taught me to be a witness. And when um, nothing went uh, according to how it should have gone, and 
five women who were there to witness, all of us Temple Recommend holding women, were not even allowed in the building. And I just kept thinking, what would Levina do? How would she be here? And how would she make this an experience that held people up? And in a sense, she guided everything that I did. Two of the other witnesses had not had the practice, I guess I would say, of dealing with uh, abusive leadership. They were not prepared to be so hurt. And it was interesting to see how intentionally I could be aware of their pain and hold them up as Levina has held me up. And so many people in the moment not being diminished by the act of these leaders, but being very aware of the impact on others and holding them up and doing what could be done to help them make it through a hard time. And then also to continue to be a witness of what was happening and speak for what I love about this community and what I love about the gospel and the community that claims this, to speak what it can be and when it is not that. And what kept coming to me is Levina did not allow the actions of other people be the determining factor in the kind of person she was and the kind of life she led. She acknowledged the impact of, of other people but she did not allow that to be the determining factor in the kind of person she was. And that is what carried me through that and so many other experiences. And I am deeply grateful for her impact and example on me. I'm Claire Barris. I haven't been rubbing shoulders with Levine of like most of you have, and the stories accounted uh, so far today. I lost my traditional testimony uh, in about 1989 and was very alone because I didn't know anything about Sunstone or Dialogue. I was just alone. And after, if I've ever had answers to prayers, felt like I was led to Sunstone and Dialogue. And and there was Levina, among other iconic people that that was really a, a home to me. And these people became larger than life and so important to me in my journey. I remember uh, when Levina gave her chronology of tensions between the church leadership and uh, the scholarly community. And that was epic and troubling. But an example, I thought of putting courage and integrity and truth above all else. And I, I was really struck by that. And I continued in my home uh, at Sunstone. And a few years later, she, I, I sat by her and, and she said, Hey, uh, and I, she, I, I don't know if she knew who I was or my name, but she, we chatted a bit. She said, So what are you working on? And I had never envisioned myself as someone who might present a paper or publish an article, but that got me thinking and like, geez, maybe I could do that. And then a bit later, she ended up uh, editing uh, the first thing that I did publish in the Journal of Mormon History. And I was so proud that 
she edited my piece and had inspired me to even consider that I might be able to do that. Anyway, she's someone who, like I said, didn't rub shoulders with her and work with her on a daily basis, but someone who was in the back of the audience. Uh, she was uh, an amazing, iconic person to me. Good evening. I'm Alan Roberts. I've known Levine and Paul since before they were married. So that would be 1974. I first met Paul when he came to my house in Spanish Fork in his yellow Porsche. And uh, we talked about Mormon historical architecture and became good friends right off the bat. And I met Levina shortly thereafter. Over the ensuing decades, I worked uh, with Levina on the editorial board of Signature Books for about 12 or 13 years. Um, uh, for six years, she was the editor while uh, Gary and I and Marty Bradley uh, edited Dialogue. Um, I was on the uh, uh, editorial advisory committee of Journal of Mormon History with Levina. Uh, I worked with her on the Lowell Benyon uh, book and Salamander book. And anyway, had a lot of a lot of uh, experiences with Levina, and I think I concur with everything I've heard tonight about her. I think it's all beautifully uh, accurate and and heartfelt. Uh, just a couple of memories that that are e even humorous in a way. Uh, one one day, Peggy Fletcher and I, who were co-editing uh, Sunstone, decided we wanted to meet all of the key figures in the Mormon history community. So we decided to take uh, Levina to lunch, a fancy uh, restaurant in the, uh, the old Jewish synagogue downtown. And we had a great conversation. When we got done with lunch, I looked in my wallet and I didn't have any money. And uh, Peggy looked in her, she didn't carry a purse, but she didn't have any money. <laughs> and so the vine, the vine, guess who paid for lunch? <laughs> uh, then there was an occasion I was involved with uh, Levina and the others, uh, Janice and others, uh, in the 1993 purging of Mormon intellectuals, going to the vigils. And I see Maxine here and, and Janice and others who were right in the middle of all of that. And uh, on Sundays, the Mormon Alliance group would meet at either uh, Paul and Margaret Toscano's or sometimes at Levina's and Paul's. And one day I, I decided uh, our group needed a, a theme song, something to rally us together. So I brought a tape recorder with a tape uh, and I played it. I, I didn't tell them what it was. I played it and it was Tom Petty's don't back down. <laughs> and Levina, when she heard it, just laughed. You know, I hadn't seen her laugh like that before. Uh, that was great. I actually have a number of experiences similar to this that I can relate. But on the more serious side, when Paul passed away, and by the way, it was a week after my retirement uh, ceremony at, uh, at Cooper Roberts, uh, architect. That's what I did at the time. 
And Paul came and he and I uh, talked about editing each other's manuscripts on, on 19th century for me and 20th century for him, Mormon architecture. And he's a painter and I'm a painter. And we said, let's go out painting together. And then a week later, he passed away. And so I never got to do that with him. But shortly thereafter, I called Levina to see how she was doing. She said, you need to come over to the house and you need to go downstairs into the basement, into Paul's studio, and just take anything you want out of there. So I I said, okay, I did. And it was a mess. I guess you guys remember, it was total chaos. It was like a bomb had gone off in there. And, uh, you know, but I ended up taking eight boxes of architectural books but a lot of his drawings and uh, slides and more personal things I thought should should go either to the church or to the U of U or someplace else. But it just shows uh, Levina's great generosity. Really, these material things were of no consequence to her. She just wanted them to go to the best places. So uh, all of my experiences with Levina were, were uh, thoughtful and caring and wonderful. And I, I too, think uh, I will miss her personally, as I do Paul. And I think we, as a group, will miss her. Uh, and uh, talking recently with Adrian here on the front row, she, she observed how in the mid-70s, all of these things sort of bloomed. Uh, Sunstone came on the scene. Dialogue was already going strong. The... the uh, uh, you know, the Mormon New Mormon History Group kind of coalesced around Arrington over over at the church uh, history department and and uh, other things like this uh, uh, network. And uh, there, there were women's groups also that came out at this time. And these people are still around, <clears throat> but we're getting older <laughs> and we're disappearing. And uh, I think it's great that we can remember uh, the contributions of people like like Levina, uh, uh, if she's looking down on us right now, I'm sure she is smiling. I think she's she's full of gratitude for for our remembering her and caring about how much good she did for all of us. Oh, Levina was already a legend. When I ran into her at LDS Archives in 1986, I'd been hearing about her for years from Linda Adams at BYU and Peggy Lee at the University of Utah, my editing mentors. And my friend Ben Whittle remembered Levina in the 60s as always running up the stairs to, at BYU to the Daily Universe, briefcase in hand, like a woman with a mission. And I thought, that's Levina, 100% engaged and present. Um, Levina and I led unusually parallel lives, both born in Shelley, Idaho, and raised there. And um, then our families both moved to eastern Washington in the early 60s, where we both graduated from high schools, competing high schools in Sunnyside and Othello. But Levina was a dozen years ahead of me um, in age. But I used to drive potato truck between Sunnyside and Othello, in a 10-wheeler, I would drive over the Horse Seven Hills, pick up potatoes from the farmers in Othello, drive them back to Sunnyside, and I'm confident that I hauled potatoes for her father without realizing who he was. But we both went to BYU, and we both served missions when women weren't supposed to go. And we both planned to go to the University of Washington, where she went, but I diverted to the U of U. 
Then we both ended up in Utah as editors working for the church, her at the Ensign and me at BYU. And then we both went independent for probably the same reasons. We really were both fiercely independent, so we became independent editors in Salt Lake and got to know each other. And then we were excommunicated together in 1993. So with that parallel history, Levina and I had a lot of interesting conversations. You know, we, I loved Levina and admired her, and we gave each other a hard time, and we really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed unsettling her, and she enjoyed correcting me. I would often approach her with an unusual perspective, and she would respond with a very pragmatic one. Um, we commiserated about the burden of being Mormon royalty. She, a member of the of Mary Fielding's family, and um, me, uh, a third cousin of Lucy Mack, and also Lucy Mack's scribe, Martha Corey, with a dozen, no, actually 18 Mormon great-great-grandparents. And so Levina would tease me and say, you know, Maxine, you're better connected than General Electric. <laughs> um, she always had a quip for every, I mean, every circumstance. Levina never missed a, a, a minute to have a quip about whatever was, was happening. I don't know if I should share this. It's one of those humorous examples from the ladies' restroom, but a lot of history happens in the women's restroom if you don't know this. <laughs> but I remember one time at Sunstone, I was really stressed out about my presentation, and I was going, oh, I can't believe it. I'm not prepared. I I had to stay up all night. I didn't have enough time to, to prepare. And I heard Levina's voice coming out of one of the stalls saying, Maxine, I've always considered you to do your best work under pressure. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Um, Levina made me better than I was. She grounded me. She refined me. The thing I admired, admired the most about Levina, of the hundred things to admire about Levina, was her laser-like focus that never missed a molecule. And the fact that she was 100% present every moment, recording everything, noticing everything, caring about everything, writing it down as if it mattered, because it did. It did matter. And I'd like to share a few clips from her many, many, many emails to me over the years. Just a few examples of her voice, if I can get to it from my ancient phone. Maxine, the Sisters in Spirit book grew out of Sonia Johnson's excommunication in 1979, but there was such a lag in getting it published that the connection between the two was obscured, which is probably just as well. Maxine, I feel your grief and guilt in the idea that you have some responsibility for Michael's excommunication. But as you know, surely as he did, it was only a matter of time. If it had not been that essay, it would have been something else. Maxine, what a strange segment of Mormon history you and I have lived through. Your dear friend, maybe one of the finest take-home presents from the September 6 wreckage. Maxine, for the 10th anniversary of the September 6th, I suggest that we talk about our spiritual journey since excommunication. Why cover old ground in what is basically a downer? Especially since I think our spiritual journeys in the last 10 years have been very rewarding. Maxine, Elder Bednar gave a great gift to the whole church in his first conference talk when he spoke about tender mercies. 
for the first time, we could talk about grace without having to explain that we didn't mean that Protestant thing. <laughs> yes, Maxine, it's interesting how much has changed and yet how much, unfortunately, remains unchanged. Maxine, I'm so happy for you, especially since I know that you wouldn't have taken this step unless you had a strong leading that it was the right thing to do and it was the right time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it with me. Maxine, I truly have the feeling that your rebaptism is a hinge event, significant in itself, but the prelude to other good things waiting to happen. Angels have been put in your path to bear you up. Maxine, the anniversary of Paul's death was a bittersweet experience, followed immediately by the reconvening of the High Council Court on Sunday. The verdict was to recommend reinstatement to the First Presidency. President McLean said over and over that he had no control over the verdict, which could be yes, no, maybe, or something completely unexpected. But I feel immense peace, Maxine. And I know that you know what I mean, since I have fulfilled what I consider my promise made 25 years ago. Isn't it ironic, Maxine? We've lived by words all our lives, and now when we really need them, they fail us. Maxine, I think it's such a blessing to avoid a prolonged illness with all the attendant fears, tests, hospitalizations. It's a blessing, at least for the one summoned to the next life. I hope that Paul and Michael are having a good time catching up with each other. Do you think they've invited Boyd K. Packer to at least one of those conversations? Maxine, what a great way to start off the Quinn Conference. Wonderful job telling the story with all the pieces in place. Thank you. And what a great quotation that Ben ended the conference on. Good history is prophetic. Did you have any sense of Michael's presence during the conference? I did. And last, Maxine, the nice thing about a continuing saga is that there is always another chapter. Regrettably, uh, it's time for us to close, but thank you for all of you who have shared your thoughts. Um, it was very moving uh, to remember Levina in this way, and I'm sure many more of you have, have thoughts that you'd like to share as well. If you wanted to share them in an email, then uh, we at Signature can make them available at, with the public as well if you would like. In closing, I, I I was thinking a lot about, was it you, Christian, that said that uh, Lamina only had one son, but she mothered a generation of Mormon sisters and daughters? Quoting someone from her walk. Uh, I, I um, just listening to all of us speak tonight and then my own experience, that's so true. I've known Levina for a long time, and I've always known we had a lot in common. Um, I didn't realize how much we had in common until the funeral, her funeral. I grew up as a total bookworm when I was a kid. Books were my my thing, and I loved to go to the bookmobile like Levina, climb into the bookmobile and bring home as many books as I could. That was the highlight of my week. Levina was my mom's English teacher at BYU. <laughs> so Levina educated my mother. <laughs> in English. 
Like Levina, I earned a bachelor's degree at BYU with an English minor. I majored in journalism, and uh, we both worked at the Daily Universe. I went on to be an editor at the Ensign Magazine, like Levina. And then after I left the Ensign, I started my own freelance editing company, like Levina. I started to become involved with the Mormon History Association and Mormon history like Levina. And I remember going to one conference where it was shortly after Levina had been excommunicated in 1993. And my dad pointed Levina out. And he said, that's Levina Fielding Anderson. And she was one of the September 6th. And my dad helped me change the way I saw the world because I was thinking, oh, the, the, at that time in my life, I was thinking, oh, those people must have done something really wrong. But my dad pointed out Levine and said, she's such a good woman. And uh, she has never lost her faith. It shouldn't have happened. She's a wonderful person. You should get to know her, Barbara. And it was after that at MHA, I started to become friends with Levina. When I was on the board of directors for the Mormon History Association, Levina was the editor of the Journal of Mormon History. So I had the pleasure of working alongside her uh, with in the MHA capacities. I started attending pilgrimage, an annual meeting of Mormon feminists, and some of us are here in the audience tonight, and deepened my friendship with Levina there. And I remember if we spoke too long, we each had a minute to get up and introduce ourselves at the beginning of pilgrimage, and Levina was the one to make sure we didn't go over. And if any of us went over a minute, she had she always had a scarf, and she'd take it off her neck and start waving it if you hit one minute. And at first, I thought she was being friendly, just kind of... But then I realized if people went over a minute, she would just stand again. I mean, she would get angry, keeping us all in line. I remember that about Lamina. And then I uh, became an editor of other people's books and wrote my own books, starting to write my own books. And now I work for Signature Books, where I followed her there, too. And I've just realized that although I didn't plan it this way, I, I have followed the path that Lamina has tread before not just for me, but for so many of us here tonight. So I am grateful for her and her example. And I think about her and her example all the time. And I come across her footprints or fingerprints on everything at Signature and everywhere I go. Christian, we're so grateful to you that you and Levina, before she passed, reached out to us at Signature and said that the biography that Levina had been working on for a lifetime on Lucy Max Smith that she wanted that to be finished and published by Signature Books and reached out to author Christine Hagland and Christine will be finishing that. So I just wanted to announce that we will have one more book by Levina Fielding Anderson soon. Really quickly, Levina told me that she expected her journal to be one of the seminal sources for future historians. And I feel like she's saying right now, all you people out here who have memories of any of this stuff, be documenting it because Somebody down the line is going to need it. Thank you. That book is forthcoming. I'm also excited to announce we've talked a lot about D. Michael Quinn, who was a dear friend of Levina, who also wrote about Levina in his memoir. His memoir, titled Chosen Path, will be published. Its release date is December 18th, so in the next few weeks here. And so I hope you'll all look forward to, to reading that. Thank you again for all of your thoughts and, and memories shared, and we look forward to sharing this with the, the greater public. And also, I just wanted to remind all of you that we have a, a gift, Levina's last book that she wrote, besides this, this forthcoming one, 
but mercy without end. We have a gift for all of you who would like to take one home in, in memory of Levina tonight. Thank you so much for coming tonight.